Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Cyrus. I work for AWS um, AI Labs, specifically Deep Engine, which is responsible for creating SageMaker and MXNet, which is a framework. I am from the MXNet part of the family. Uh, have the privilege of presenting to you what MXNet actually is and what it does together with Jay from Chick-fil-A that would share real-world insights with you about how they have used SageMaker and MXNet to solve the problem they have. So the next 25 minutes, I would be going through basically MXNet's features and uh, what is it all about and getting slightly technical about it. Not very, just somehow. Uh, and then I hand over to Jay. So uh, to basically save some time, let's start. So basically, back in the day, back in, I don't know, early 2000, late 90s, when we were doing um, neural networks, we really were not making a lot of, uh, we were not very successful, basically, because the, the computational requirements were so heavy that there was no machine to do that, and we could not distribute our load. That went on for a while until the people figured out that there is a graphic card that every professor's kid was actually playing computer games on, and nobody realized we could actually use that to distribute, basically, a load. And when we figured that out, things started going a completely different direction. So let's start with what a computational graph is. So when you're trying to compute something, you should be able to parallelize parts of it. So after all, in our brain, we have a very interesting parallel processing computer. So here what we have is something called computational graph. If you look at this, you want to compute basically T, you have to compute U, you have to compute K, and if you come down here, you get to some part that computing Z and computing K, they're actually independent of one another. So if we can build a system that can take a look at our, basically the map of our computation, so all of the millions and millions and millions of floating point you know, operations, whether it's multiplication or addition, or we're trying to calculate gradients, and if it builds something that can take a look at the map, can map your computation, and then try to find how much of it can be parallelized, then we should be able to compute things faster. And that's what happened, uh, and that what, that's what gave birth to um, 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 deep learning frameworks. So what a deep learning framework does as general, there's a symbolic code from MXNet. This is not what you really use it or how you really use it. You use a much higher level API. But let's take a look at that because that's closer to what the framework does for you. So it's a symbolic, a few symbolic lines of code. So what you're trying to hear, you're trying to create a dense layer and with 64 hidden units and then you're going to have an activation function of ReLU, and then you're going to have a discrimination layer that it does 10, basically, classification for 10 classes, and then you pass that through a softmax that can give you a probability distribution of the end. So when you give that to your engine, the engine next tries to map a computational graph for it and figure out what part of that computational graph is going to be parallelized. And it doesn't assign data to it in the beginning. It assigns data lazily. The binding of data is lazily done later. So like here, when you start um, binding data, 
here we have the data being attached to it, then it starts basically running that computational graph forward and backward path and all of that based on the optimized path it has figured out and it tries to parallelize the computation as much as it can. Because when you're multiplying two matrices, the vast, vast, vast majority of what you're computing can be done without needing to talk to one another when you do your back propagation and then when your gradients come back to the server, that's, that's the only place they need to be, uh, uh, that needs to be sequential, not even that. So, moving forward, when the data has been, when you bind data to your model, and then it can throw that parallel processing onto a GPU, a Volta, for instance, and try to uh, millions and millions of cores and try to maximize parallelism into millions and millions of parallel streams of computation. And that's how a framework can help you achieve deep learning, something we could not do back in early 2000s and late 90s. So why do we use MXNet? There are basically several um, frameworks out there. Prominent ones are TensorFlow, PyTorch, and MXNet. And why, what does it that MXNet do and that, that, that is important? First of all, it's got training efficiency. What you see in here, um, long ago, we tr uh, basically MXNet was built for training efficiency in the first place for efficient parallel processing. So what we have in here, there's a training efficiency of 92% for um, ResNet 152 over 256 uh, GPUs and 16 machines. So that means every time, that means when, if you double your compute power, you gain a 184% uh, increase in your performance, which is almost linear. It's very, it's near linear. Linear is your ideal, that you want to double your computation in a distributed system, and then you would expect that to become you know, twice as fast, so if 184 is very good, given that you have network latency in here, it's not just in a single machine. You have 16 machines that are talking to another over basically a network. And now we have to try that again because now we have introduced these, um, basically we, in a couple of months there are new instances coming out with 100 uh, basically gig network between them. So that probably can be even improved further. So what else? Then we created, last year we announced it, and we have added so many features to it, Amazon SageMaker. It's built to give you a secure, zero setup, serverless environment to do distributed training. So, and does take care of so much of the distribution on its own, and it's got fast connections to the S3, and S3 can stream information to your model, and that's how the two of them can be married together very nicely, MXNet because of its ability to do distributed training, and SageMaker, Amazon SageMaker, to give you the tool set that you need to do that. Uh, SageMaker has this um, capability called uh, streaming. So streaming used to be only for the built-in algorithms. So what you see in here is the data that is coming from a PCA algorithm that you see when you use the streaming, how uh, basically job execution time starts up and basically anything that has to do with uh, data streaming gets faster. Why is it important? Because your bottleneck almost always is I.O., is not compute. It's called feeding the beast. Feeding the GPU is a very difficult task because it's so hungry and it just keeps eating your data and just giving it enough data to just to make it work is not very easy. So 
what you have through streaming, you have a fast, basically, um, pipeline of basically pumping data to your framework. And then, as of last summer, during the New York Summit, we introduced streaming for custom algorithms, not just the built-in algorithms. You can use the same streaming for your, for your own algorithm, and you can benefit from this fast flow of data and hopefully not be starving your GPU. Secondly, there's a boilerplate code you see, code you see here. If you're using the SageMaker um, Python SDK, and then the code that is here, it detects you have multiple machines, and it just distributes your training. You don't do nothing. You just, when you're tr starting a training job, you give it, I want four machines. And it figures out you have multiples of machines, and then using that in order to distribute your training on a cluster, you basically do nothing. And it's kind of um, non-trivial to do it on your own because you have to do a lot of optimization, not because of the number of code, but optimization across the cluster. The way it works in SageMaker is that you, your data is in a bucket, S3 bucket, your, um, your code is either in S3 bucket or in some sort of a Git repository or somewhere. So the code and the data is going to be streamed or copied to every machine and then uh, uh, an ECR, ECS cluster is going to be built. A, um, um, cl uh, the machines inside the cluster would be created. Uh, you can decide about how to secure it, how to do encryption and then the training would be distributed in that cluster. The result here would be put on an S3, that would be your trained model, uh, and then the cluster would be destroyed and you pay only for the seconds that you use that cluster. So that makes it very efficient for these expensive GPUs under the hood. We added last, this year, also automatic model training some time ago, the first version came out, that gives you a Bayesian hyperparameter optimization that is applying machine learning to figure out the best combination of your hyperparameters. So those hours and hours and hours of time that you're tweaking this and tweaking that because hyperparameters, every time you add a new parameter, you're just adding a degree of freedom and that means an exponential growth in the number of uh, permutations you can have for your um, hyperparameters, but using that is going to apply machine learning, a Bayesian model, to figure out what is the best combination of your hyperparameters and gives you the best model from the several trainings it has done. So that's another thing that you can gain when you do your training inside SageMaker. So that was training efficiency. When we created, when MXNet was created, and uh, in the early stages as we're developing it further, we were, we were having a very academic outlook in it. And the academic outlook is very much focused on training efficiency. Training is everything. Accuracy is everything. It's not made for real world. It's made for experiments. And then we started talking to customers, people like Chick-fil-A, and they told us we really don't care about training because I'm not going to have a large cluster for most of my use cases. And if you saw Andy's um, keynote yesterday, there is a very small amount of cost. No matter how much training you do, is going to go to your training, even though it could be significant. There have been cases by optimizing training, we have saved the customer in Japan about 22 million a year. But that, compared to the inference, is just small, right? So then we started thinking about developer pro productivity and inference. So developer productivity came through Gluon. So um, look at the history of these uh, frameworks. 
there used to be the Google Tom, Theano was the first one in here, then Cafe came out, and then TensorFlow created the first truly industrial grade uh, framework. Keras made it easy by creating a symbolic high level uh, API on the top of TensorFlow. MXNet itself was uh, mostly um, uh, symbolic except for the NDRA. And then Chainer came and created the next very good idea. What if instead of that difficult symbolic programming that would spend, that would cause your, cause your basically scientists or your developers spend 80, 90% of their time blindly trying to debug the code and see what went wrong because they had no insight because of the lazy binding. You build a computational graph, you throw data at it, and then you know what happens. You just wait, error spews out, you never know why. Layer three to layer four, shape incorrect. You have no idea, you can't look inside. So Chainer came about and created an imperative programming framework that said, what if we have these nice for loops and, you know, like the things that we had in more traditional imperative form of programming that we could actually put um, 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 breakpoints on the code, look inside the values, look inside the variables, why don't we do that? That was an excellent thing they did. PyTorch picked it up. PyTorch became very successful in the academia because of the ease of programming. But what they lost was the speed that you had in here because there was no lazy binding. 2017, we released Gluon. Gluon has a code similar to PyTorch and Chainer by being imperative, but you just get your network and say hybridize, it turns into this. So you have the speed from MXNet, and then you have the ease of programming from Gluon. So you're combining the best of the two worlds together. So that would be your developer productivity. So it's simple coding in Gluon. It's got imperative structure, and it's got dynamic graphs in a way that it calculates what is the shape is going to be. You don't have to layer to layer st statically decide about the shape and just statically put in it here. So much of the time that you were doing on a paper, figuring out what the shape of the next layer would be gone because it's just done on the fly. And it's got the high performance of uh, MXNet. And the code that we have seen before is going to look like this. So I'm creating a sequential or hybrid sequential because I want to hybridize it later. Network, that means I'm stacking layers on the top of one another. Then I'm adding a dense layer, and I have the basically the final layer that has 10 classes from a library of basically um, um, lots of loss function that we have because that's a classification. I've used the softmax cross entropy. You can attach that to your network. Then you can randomly initialize or just different ways of initialization, whether it's random or you can use all zeros or a specific number, or you can basically get a tensor of a pre-trained network and just use that as the weights of the new network in the cases of transfer learning. So you can do initialization. Finally, you can give it a, um, uh, optimization, uh, basically you tell it what optimizer to use. Here we say in a stochastic gradient descent with a learning rate of whatever. Uh, you could make that a stochastic gradient descent. It could be a learning rate. You could give it weight, um, uh, weight decay. You could give it momentum. You could give it all different sorts of things. Or you could do Adam. You could do RMS prompt. You could do some more um, 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 uh, algorithms that are used for distributed training such as Zygnum that is not that is not sending the gradients, the, the, the values back, it just communicates the, si the sign which has the same effect is very good when you have a large cluster for training. So 
and then you move on to train your network. And that's where the difference happens. Here, I'm just going, loading my data one mini batch at a time. I'm running my forward pass of the network here by output equals net, and I'm passing a mini batch to it. By putting it inside this autograd record, what I'm telling it that as you go, I want attached gradients to you, and I want you to calculate the gradients. By calculating the gradients, then that means when you go to the backward pass, it knows it has to go and basically um, 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 uh, do the gradient descent stuff and, and, and has to uh, basically, and, and when you go to forward, but you go step, it just has to go and change your weights. So all of that you're seeing here, you can go and put a breakpoint here, here, wherever, and you can take a look inside what's going wrong. So that is the productivity for developers we're talking about. It doesn't end here. We just released very recently a few libraries like Gluon CV. You can use it for rapid prototyping of computer vision. It has a model zoo that includes some of the most famous and most popular algorithms. And we have massively trained those, so they actually mostly beat the original paper in terms of performance. And then you can use them for transfer learning. So if you just use that pre-trained equals yes, equals true, uh, then you can, do, you can use uh, basically uh, re um, 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 transfer learning for your own data sets and for your model so you don't start from a set of random weights. We have done the same thing for uh, Gluon NLP, for natural language processing such as translation, such as language modeling, such as embedding. So we have the same sort of toolkit and the libraries for that. So you don't start from scratch, you start from model zoo and you just continue on from there. It goes on. We introduced in 2017 also Keras backend. And you see here the um, benchmarking of Keras as you're getting more distributed here over basically more GPUs. From here, from 7, 764 to 1068, you can see that here as well. So MXNet continues improving while TensorFlow, TensorFlow stops basically going down. It cannot handle that, you know, like it doesn't distribute as well. Uh, this was done before we made improvements to TensorFlow. I'm hoping TensorFlow is not doing that anymore. But uh, we, we, have, we, ha we have a team that works on TensorFlow's distribution. So we have done some improvements in there. So it might, it might have changed. But when this benchmark was done, it was before those improvements to TensorFlow. So as you see, by just changing your backend, you gain, without, without touching your previous code, if you're a Keras shop, you just change the backend of Keras. And that's all you need to do to gain performance, hopefully. Um, there is also Sakai, something that we released 2016 based on symbolic MXNet. Uh, it's a sequence-to-sequence -sequence model for natural language, um, uh, for, for neural machine translation, and we have made it open. It's basically we made it open source. You can. It was developed by a few guys in Berlin. Uh, that's where I'm based. And then it is Sakai is pretty much the thing behind all the translation we do these days in Amazon and in AWS. So this is something open source. You can just use it for your own benefit. It doesn't end there. I will, I will have to add a slide in here because um, 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 MXNet is polyglot. It doesn't have to be Python. We have our API. We have a Scala API. We have Java API. I think we have Perl. I'm not sure. But there's a, so the language, we give you the language of choice. You don't have to be chained to Python if you want to use it. Just use Java. So. Developer efficiency, training efficiency, now the final thing is 
inference efficiency, things that we heard from the likes of Jay, that really most of my money goes into my inference. Why are you just keep telling me uh, about the um, 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 training? Actually, that conversation did literally happen when we were preparing for that session. I said, you keep talking about, you know, like, and then I realized about um, 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 training, then I realized maybe we have done so much work, maybe we should talk about that too. Recently, we introduced TensorRT. You can see, if you use TensorRT, how you can get faster on the same hardware. So, for instance, ResNet 101, which is the best results we got, uh, using TensorRT becomes twice as fast. So, it's a more recent release on the inference side. Um, the other thing we introduce is NNVM. So these days, the case, of, the case that you would see soon, you might want to run different inference endpoints. You might be on Raspberry Pi, you might be on Atom, you might be on GPU, you might be on CPU. Then you shouldn't be forced to sit down and optimize your model per hardware, because you have to optimize your model for the hardware you're using. We created something called Model Compiler, it's going to be called Neo, it's NNVM, whatever you're going to call it, but it's a Model Compiler. You tell it what hardware you have, and we optimize it for you. You don't have to do anything. There's a couple of lines of code that's saying, I'm going to compile that model for Raspberry Pi, or I'm going to compile that for a Volta GPU, or I'm going to have it on a you know, like um, 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 CPU, uh, Intel CPU. So the, that hugely helps you for having your efficient inference at your endpoints, and that is done through um, uh, a model compiler. Um, the other thing is portability. So portability is achieved through two separate things. One is NNVM, so it's a hardware portability. I just talked about that. So you have an abstraction layer, and that abstraction layer helps you to deploy your model in the different hardware, as well as you have Onyx. So you're a PyTorch shop. Excellent. Please don't change your framework. Continue developing your code in PyTorch. Those of us who actually support Onyx, we have Basically, models can be imported for, uh, you know, model developed by PyTorch, you can, you can import it to MXNet, you can pass it on to the model compiler. So there is a, you can move from wherever you start and you can go wherever you want to go. So you have the ease of PyTorch, you have an in-house in developer team, you have 200 developers that are comfortable with PyTorch. That is too costly to try to convert them to a, to a new framework, and you shouldn't be doing that. But you should be able to have fast and efficient uh, inference. So that means you can, um, com you, can your, you can import your models to MXNet from PyTorch or from Chainer or whoever else that is supporting um, um, uh, Onyx and, uh, and, and, and reap the rewards of basically fast in um, um, uh, inference. So now, there is another problem. So coding is good, research is good, development is good, but that thing needs to go into an industrial grade into a pipeline of uh, deployment. So you can use Amazon SageMaker for that pipeline. It's a pure DevOps environment for machine learning. So what you do, you can have A-B uh, testing, you can have blue-green deployment, you can have different profiles and decide how, what, what percentage goes where. And these are just the few configuration items from the GUI or in your code. You really don't have to do much. So you can now have an end-to-end, -end, basically, uh, environment, a complete end-to-end -end environment that not only lets you do rapid prototyping 
fast inference, but you can also control your deployments, something that has been important for customers like Chick-fil-A to be able to control your deployment environment to thousands of locations if you would like to do that. To recap, um, you can have MXNet for efficient training and inference. You have Gluon for developer productivity, portability, and you have Amazon SageMaker for an end-to-end -end platform that is completely serverless and removes the need for you to be building a dockerized environment and you know having a load balancer and an auto-scaling group. It's just one line of code that you say deploy does that all for you. One single line of code does produce your inference environment for you with auto-scaling groups with, you know, like elastic load balancer, and as the load goes up, you have more machines. As the load goes down, you have fewer machines. And now adding to that the elastic inference that we just, that we just introduced yesterday, that you don't even have to have these beefy P2s and P3s for inference. So to give you an idea about how it works, uh, P3, so is the cheapest inference if you have 200 uh, requests per second. Sorry, 200,000. If you have 200,000 requests per, request per second, then P3 is the cheapest. But how many of us have 200,000 requests per second? And this is something that we're trying to introduce through uh, elastic inference. That means you have all the goodies of GPU inference while you don't have to run a GPU machine, a big beefy GPU machine underground in order to be able to have that inference. So with that, I'm going to pass the torch on to Jay, and that would be his comments, so. Thank you, Cyrus. Again, my name is Jay Duff, and uh, I have an awesome role at uh, an incredible company in that I lead a technology innovation center for Chick-fil-A, and we're located on the Georgia Tech campus in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, last year when I came to reInvent, I had no experience with deep learning or computer vision. Um, I kind of felt like you needed a PhD to do that type of work. I felt like it was over my head, um, but I did have one of those deep lens devices, and I was really anxious to, to learn how to use that deep lens device and how we might use it at Chick-fil-A. Um, what I'm going to share with you in the remaining 20 minutes is how we got started with MXNet and how SageMaker helped us with that. So innovation at Chick-fil-A, that's a key part of who we are. We have a rich history of innovation. And uh, in fact, I think you'd be surprised at how much technology is involved in providing a remarkable experience around a great chicken sandwich. Um, in fact, my technology center is only a small part of the innovation that goes on at Chick-fil-A. And one of the things that makes us unique is the fact that we are staffed 100% with students. So it's very relevant to this session about how to get started with MXNet, that what I'm gonna show you is all of the work that we did in this past 12 months was done with Georgia Tech students, specifically with two sophomores and one junior. And among those three students, um, two of them had one semester of Python, they had no experience with deep learning or computer vision, nor did they have any experience with AWS. So truly, we started from a ground zero when we went into this, and I can assure you that there were no PhDs involved in the testing of these models. The challenge for us was how to get started with computer vision. Our real goal was it's simply to learn computer vision and to learn deep neural networks. 
um, to make sure that it was relevant, our use case relates to waffle fries. So waffle fries are the, the single largest selling item at Chick-fil-A, as you might expect. And our particular use case was to identify waffle fries that have exceeded their hold time in a product shoot. So what that might look like, this is actually an image from, from the proposed solution at the end. And uh, what you see here is that's an actual product shoot. It's a stainless steel shoot that the fries would sit in once they had, were prepared. And the idea was to be able to identify what packages of fries have been in there longer than the hold time. Uh, when, when fries are, have been held beyond the, the hold time, they're not optimal. We don't want to serve them to guests. So we wanted a flexible means of being able to identify which ones uh, had been there too long. So if you were, went to any typical Chick-fil-A restaurant, you would see this fry station. This is a picture taken at my local Chick-fil-A, just looking across the counter. And the fry station is inside that big yellow box. Um, there's a couple of other um, complexities in this project that, that came up and that, that we needed to address. First of all, we have nearly 2,400 restaurants, so whatever we developed needed to be something that we could potentially, if we pursued this idea, that we could deploy this across the entire chain. Um, how, how would you deploy models out to restaurants remotely without ever having gone there? And uh, a couple of other added gotchas here is the there's a heated hood over top of the fries. In fact, this is extremely hot to the point that it, I'm sure it would melt a camera. So you can't put the camera over top of the fries and you're gonna see in a few minutes that would have made life a lot simpler because it would have eliminated occlusion, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, likewise, generally speaking, it's a hostile environment. So you can't just slap a computer on the side of this fry station. I'm sure it wouldn't last much more than a week. So uh, let me talk briefly about how we designed the software um, and the type of problem that we were going to, or the solution we were going to use to track these fries. This is a solution where we're combining object detection with object tracking. So for object detection, we're using a single shot detection model. And Cyrus mentioned using a model zoo. That simply means there's a bunch of pre-trained models in a library, and we pulled a VGG16 model out of that library. It's a very standard model. And we use, a, again, a, a single shot detection model. We'll identify all of the fries in the image, and it will return the location of those fries. So you're going to see that in just a minute, that there might be an image with, say, 10 or 12 fry packages in it and it will give us the coordinates. It will draw a box around every one of those fries, and we take the location of the fries, and we pass that to an object tracker that's in OpenCV. So again, this is a combination of an MXNet model for detecting the fries, but we use OpenCV to actually track the fries as they pass through this um, particular shoot. The other thing I wanted to say here is that we also track hands. Um, our fries don't normally move on their own, so we know that in the, in the model of tracking, we know that events are only occurring when there's a hand in the picture, in, in the image. Somebody's putting fries on or they're taking them off. And the other thing you're going to see here in this, di this, this simple diagram is that we have an error um, detection route, uh, loop here. So what, what's going on here is we take the video and we're going to look at a segment of 10 uh, images from the video. And the first frame, if you will. We take the frame, the image, and we send it to the image detection, rather the object detection algorithm. It returns the location of the fries, and then in the next nine frames, we track them with OpenCV. 
when we've reached the 11th frame, we repeat. And in repeating, we do another object detection and we resolve the differences between what has been detected with what has been tracked. Because ultimately, as you track things, the tracking isn't perfect and we need to get things lined back up. So we have a manual, um, it's, it's the box that says resolve. We resolve the differences between detection and tracking. And I also want to point out that's the single largest weakness in this design, um, the fact that we had to, had to resolve those errors manually. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a pretty simple program. It's only one or two pages of Python code. So I want to talk about why, why use SageMaker. Um, when you get started with deep learning, you're going to find that it's, it's kind of difficult just to manage the development environment. Um, SageMaker is going to support a lot of different frameworks. It's, it's going to support, um, as Cyrus mentioned, it's going to support MXNet or PyTorch or TensorFlow and, and others. Um, but underneath each one of those frameworks is a number of other libraries, whether that's the CUDA libraries for the GPU or it's NumPy or a bunch of linear algebra libraries that becomes complex and cumbersome to manage those environments and those, that software. SageMaker, on the other hand, is completely managed. So if you select SageMaker and you crank up a notebook, you can do that in about two minutes and immediately you'll have a development environment that's ready to go, regardless of which one of those um, frameworks you're going to use. Likewise, it's going to give you a, an interactive uh, Jupyter notebook to work with. So if you've never used a Jupyter notebook, that means that you're going to be able to code, uh, write your program interactively, uh, and you can do that from a web browser. So that's very easy. Um, I know in my environment, that also helps me to bypass a bunch of hassles related to security and SSH tunnels and things like that. Being able to do it from the, from the browser was infinitely simple. And remember, I'm working with sophomores and juniors, so simple is definitely good in this case. Um, likewise, when you get to the point of training, uh, SageMaker is going to make it easy to connect with S3. Undoubtedly, your training data is going to be on S3. And as Cyrus had mentioned, once you start to train and you want to ramp up to, to more resources, changing to a larger server or more nodes in a cluster is merely a parameter change. So it makes it much easier there. And again, um, Cyrus also mentioned that when you get to deployment, it's only one line of code to take a working model and then deploy it out to EC2. So SageMaker definitely makes this much, much easier and uh, definitely a good place to get started. The other thing I wanted to mention on this slide is on the right side, you see two general architectures. And we designed um, the solution to do the inference at the edge. That's the top uh, image there. And specifically, what we wanted to do is put the model to a Jetson um, TX2. If you're not familiar with the Jetson, it, it's really a, a very interesting device um, in that it has an ARM processor and it has an NVIDIA GPU all, all on a single board. And uh, our idea was to use the Jetson as a green grass core and we can deploy the model to that device and then do all the computations on the edge. Um, the second diagram below it, we're beginning to reevaluate this decision. And in the second diagram, that's what our architecture would look like if we do the inference in the cloud. So a couple of points there that SageMaker is going to su easily support either one of these models. It's going to be easy to migrate between the two. And the products that were announced this week actually make both of those solutions a lot easier. Um, working with the, the Jetson was kind of difficult, but the compiler that was announced, I think it was, it's called SageMaker Neo, 
uh, Cyrus referred to it as NNVM, that will make it much easier to take your model and deploy it as a binary to the Jetson, and then you get away from the hassle of managing a bunch of uh, libraries and compiling libraries locally. So Neo would definitely help the top box, and on the second box, the lower one, if you want to do your inferences um, in the cloud, Elastic uh, Inference is going to make that much, much more economical and more flexible. But again, Sage, my point here was that SageMaker is going to be able to help you either way. Either way, and um, we're kind of working through the debate of whether we should do inference on the on the edge or if we should do it in the cloud. Um, why MXNet? I think Cyrus answered um, a lot of this question. Um, certainly, when we chose MXNet, we were very interested in the performance of MXNet, um, but we were also interested in MXNet because of AWS's role. Um, AWS is a key contributor to MXNet, and I was confident that there would be good support, and indeed, I have had good support from Amazon as we worked with MXNet, as we worked with, with SageMaker, and in fact, we've been involved in a number of the pilots that led up to this week's announcements. Um, if, if you chose MXNet, how do you go about learning MXNet? Um, you really need to start, I would recommend that you start with a, a basic understanding of Python. Uh, when I started this 12 months ago, I quickly found out that actually I don't know Python as well as I thought I did. Um, but a basic understanding of Python, you need, really need to review some basic linear algebra principles and you need to have a basic understanding of NumPy. And we used OpenCV for managing all of the images as well as the video. And all of these packages are widely adopted. They're easy to use. There's plenty of books and videos and tutorials that you'll find online with, with examples. So you won't have any problems with Python or OpenCV. When you start with MXNet, um, I listed two, um, two URLs there. Uh, the first one is Zach Chase. He wrote a tutorial, MXNet the Straight Dope. That is a really fantastic tutorial. It assumes that you have no prior experience with machine learning. It's going to walk you through the basics of, of some of the linear algebra. It's going to bring back some calculus nightmares for you that are pretty brief. Um, but it's going to give you a great introduction into deep learning. And it will get you to a point, frankly, I want to go back to what Cyrus was talking about. If you didn't understand what Cyrus was talking about in 15 minutes ago when he had the code, by the time you go through these two um, tutorials, you'll have a clear understanding of what Cyrus was talking about with the symbolic programming and how to debug and things like that. So uh, the second one there is a Gluon CV tutorial. You can take a note of those or simply Google uh, Gluon and tutorials and surely you'll, you'll find these. They'll be the two first hits that you find. But the tutorials um, were excellent uh, material for getting started with MXNet. Uh, as you get started with MXNet and you start to learn and you go through these tutorials, you're going to see that you really have two choices for a development environment. As I mentioned earlier, you're going to have SageMaker, but you might also encounter uh, people that are going to recommend that you use the deep learning AMI. And uh, I would recommend that you start with SageMaker because clearly you're going to want to use SageMaker to manage the entire cycle of developing, training, and deploying a model. You're, you're, no question, you're going to want it to, to be familiar with SageMaker. But you might find yourself in a situation where your use case is a little more complex and you need access to the underlying EC2 instance. Um, if that's the case, know that you can use the AMI, the DL, uh, deep learning AMI, and that's a good alternative. So in my example, um, in the work that we were doing, I needed to get access to the Ubuntu desktop 
particularly as it relates to doing some of the OpenCV functionality where I wanted to manipulate images. That wasn't easy to do from a Jupyter notebook. So I went back to the, the AMI during a development cycle, used VNC server to connect, did all of the OpenCV, had a model that was working, and then immediately went back to um, SageMaker. Again, my point here is to know that both are available. Um, SageMaker is going to be easier to use, but if you run into a situation where you need to get to the underlying machine um, or you have issues with versions, um, for example, you can always fall back to the, the, to the deep learning AMI. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here is, um, it looks like some of my formatting didn't carry through. Um, in our innovation center, we work, again, we work with all students, and it's a bring your own device um, environment. So we don't give the students any hardware. Um, they show up with whatever laptop they use for school. And uh, we use workspaces, Amazon workspaces, for all of our work. And um, in particular, that has worked extremely well. And uh, I particularly have, have enjoyed working with the Linux uh, workspaces that became available, I think, about mid-year um, this, this past year. So once you get started with this, you're going to find that training data is paramount. It's extremely important, and it's probably going to be the, the bulk of your work. Um, what you see here, and the other thing I wanted to mention here before I go into this, is that when you do the training, and, or the, the uh, training becomes a pun here, so let me change my words. When you learn how to use MXNet, um, the books are going to use uh, public data sets, and you're going to find... Um, a lot of helper functions and a lot of things are going to be uh, automated for you to make it really easy such that when you go to use your own data, now you're going to have to do that from scratch and you got to work through the fact that they took shortcuts. So you got to learn this stuff yourself. And, and again, that working with training data um, took a lot of time. Uh, when we started out, I, I tried doing the training data manually and within an hour, you'll figure out that that's a really dumb idea. Um, you definitely don't want to generate training data manually. You'll never come up with 10,000 images in any reasonable amount of time. You're quickly going to see that you need to come up with some way to automatically, in an automated function, um, generate data. So what you see here in the top image is it's two of the students. Um, what they're using is a cell phone, and they're taking a video of the waffle fries on a green screen. And uh, you can see my green screen is nothing more than green construction paper, um, but it worked really, really well in that by taking a video and then taking the video and splitting it into images, we were able to have a wide variety of, of images of waffle fries, and they were all labeled. And when I say labeled, to train a, a detection model, you have to draw a box around every package of waffle fries. And again, you would never want to do that manually. But in this approach, I was able to do it automatically because of the green screen behind it. It was pretty easy functions using OpenCV. Um, and, and then we used all of that data. We were able to generate 25,000 um, generally random images, as, as you see the second image there. Um, 25,000 images was sufficient to get a, a basic model working. Um, and then we had an iterative approach. And again, I, would, I, I think this was, is, is the right way to do it as well. And that we had a basic model, and then we would begin putting real-world videos into the model, and we would go back and then score the inferences. So we might put a video in, which might generate 1,000 um, inferences. We would go through 
and say which ones were right, which ones were wrong. Of the ones that were wrong, we would correct a portion of those. Then we would take all of that data and feed it back in as, a, as additional training data and train once again. Um, so that way, again, it's, it's a means of getting to more complex data, a more robust model without generating a bunch of data and labeling data manually. And again, what I want to mention here is that one of the new products that was released this week, um, SageMaker Ground Truth, is a great way of managing that iteration. So with Ground Truth that was, was announced, you can easily put your data into Ground Truth and you can create a job to, to recategorize the data again to be correct or wrong, and then that will generate another manifest or a list of images, and from that, it's easy to manage how you're gonna go back and correct, and then it's easy to take that data and once again, put it back in as training data so that you're iterating. In this case, we iterated about four times, and then we had a model that, that actually performed um, very well. So let me show you an example of our model. I'm gonna show you a video here. Well, one of the things that's funny about the fries is um, we, we would go to the Chick-fil-A and we would buy like $50 worth of fries at a time to, to generate these um, uh, videos. And after you did this a few times, the fries would be like two hours old. And yeah, I, I wasn't dying to eat fries at that point. Right. Okay, well, let me show you this video here. Um, so what, we're, what you're going to see is... A couple, I want to make a couple of comments. One is that the box that we're drawing around the fries, that box is being generated by our program, which is the output of the OpenCV tracker. That's not the box that's related to the single shot detection model, okay? So as we put fries on this, um, this tray, the model works flawlessly while there's no occlusion. Occlusion simply means that one object is blocking the view of another object. So in, the, in this point in the video, that's the first instance of occlusion. Um, and it works okay with occlusion, but, but there, if you're looking carefully, we're starting to get a couple errors that are related to the occlusion. Obviously, this video is sped up. Um, but you get to a point, it, it works pretty well, um, but the occlusion does give it some problems. And our model even works with McDonald's fries, if you look at that. Um, but at some point it gets kind of confused with the occlusion. Here's another example. And if you watch here in the lower left corner, this is a, a classic example where we get occlusion between these two packages of medium fries, that the two packages right there go from two to one. And then when you begin to track from that, that's a, a good example of the type of tracking error we get. Uh, because of the occlusion error. And then if you look on the right, you can see red boxes are beginning to appear, and the red boxes are all um, related to the fact that those fries have been in that chute for um, more than the, the recommended hold time. That's exactly right. So we know that, that if fries are, are held, we, we call it the hold time. If they've been there too long, then the texture is not optimal. So this is clearly a, an optical 
or a vision application. And, and by the way, I want to go back to the comment I made earlier that the goal was to learn deep learning and computer vision. There are better ways to solve this problem, by the way. So um, that wasn't really the, the, the main intent, but um, we did want to understand how to apply deep learning in the restaurant environment. So a couple of lessons. Um, First of all, training data was hugely important and we spent the majority of our time on training data and model administration. So how are you going to take these models and deploy them across a chain of restaurants? That would be a challenge, but using um, green grass and using SageMaker certainly would make that possible. Um, but again, that, that was, that's where the majority of your time um, would be spent. The other thing is the restaurant use case is, I want to emphasize there that not every problem is a software problem. So as we got into this project, we could quickly see that packaging changes of the fries would make this a lot easier. And another thing that we learned was what happens if Chick-fil-A changes the package? Um, would you have to go back and retrain the model? Um, the answer to that is yes, you, likely you would. So that was another reason that automating the, the, the training data was so important um, that in the event, in fact, I think Chick-fil-A, I'm not sure I can say publicly, but I think there are some changes in store for the packaging of waffle fries. Again, you wouldn't want to be in a situation where it took you six months to go back and retrain all these models. Um, so packaging was clearly important. Camera placement was important. If we would have been able to put the camera over top of the fries, that would have eliminated the occlusion problem. Um, we, at this point, we don't know how to do that, because, again, because of the heater. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was the um, edge compute resources. So uh, we designed this for a, an NVIDIA Jetson, as I said earlier, because we wanted a GPU. What we found that is performance is hugely important. Uh, in the video that I showed you, that video, and again, you saw a video that was sped up, but if I was to show you the actual video, it was running at about 20 frames per second, um, which was, was difficult for the way that we had optimized the models. In other words, we took the model and we tried running it on a, I used an upsquared, um, a basic uh, Intel chip uh, computer, and that created maybe one to three frames per second. And then when we went to, um, uh, we, we tried a, a NUC, and I think we got about five frames per second. We needed a GPU, uh, a, a computer with a GPU to get up to 10 to 20 frames a second. So clearly the GPU was very important to our inference speed. Um, there were also some challenges there related to the use of MXNet versus OpenCV. So the truth is MXNet was working really well and, open, and MXNet did in fact use the, the GPU, but I, we still had some unresolved issues with OpenCV. OpenCV did not seem to use the GPU. Um, but again, those are some of the complexities that you're going to get into when you start working on compute resources on the edge and trying to figure out these libraries. Um, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the other thing I didn't, I kind of glossed over was the different types of cameras. We have a hostile environment um, and what we learned was that um, we needed to use a USB camera so that we could uh, take the compute device and have it a significant distance from the actual camera location. And uh, you, you run into some limitations with USB cameras are going to be a little bit slower. Um, a typical a reasonably priced USB camera is only going to be good for, say, 30 frames per second, which, which again was fine in our use case. But if you needed 60 frames per second, a USB camera is going to be expensive and there's going to be a lot of overhead with, with serializing and deserializing 
um, the data. Um, again, one of the other things I wanted to come back to is the fact that our algorithm required um, an error resolution step, and we coded that manually, and in hindsight, I'd say that was a terrible. Um, that generally, I think a better design, better leveraging machine learning would eliminate the manual coding. Um, that manual uh, error resolution step just seems to be brittle, and I'm confident that a better um, design with, with more complex machine learning uh, would have been a much more flexible um, algorithm. Um, but overall, we would definitely consider that it was a successful project. Um, again, we said our original objective was to understand um, computer vision, deep learning, how we might roll that out across the chain, and I think we did achieve um, a good understanding of that. And uh, it really brought us to a point where we understand how we might uh, apply computer vision in a few other opportunities or other areas of our business. And so we, we have three projects underway that, that came out of this project. Um, the first one is a, a higher performance of object tracking, again, something that uses more complex RNNs or LSTMs to try and eliminate that error resolution step. Um, the second one is one I'm particularly interested in. You see the image at the top is we're using three-dimensional cameras and we can look at a human body and translate the human body into um, three-dimensional points in space. Uh, so if we have 19 joints of your, of your body um, position, and then we can stream those 19, joint, those 19 points into a neural network, and then I can infer your activity. I can infer what you're doing. If I can infer what you're doing, um, we see that there's applications for compliance monitoring, um, simple things like did you wash your hands, how long did you wash your hands, did you change your gloves after you handled raw chicken, things like that. That's hugely beneficial um, to a restaurant um, like Chick-fil-A. So that's, that's a really exciting um, application that we're working on now. And finally, we're working on integrating um, some of this AI capability in with augmented reality. So we're using um, AWS Sumerian, and we're, we're integrating facial recognition into that, um, along with object detection um, and a few other AI types of uh, technologies. We think that a, a more uh, contextually aware um, interaction with augmented reality has um, a very good place um, in the restaurant business. Um, so thank you uh, for attending today. Thank you for your attention. I hope this left you with an impression that uh, you don't need a PhD to get started with deep learning. And certainly, I would strongly recommend you would want to get started with, uh, with AWS SageMaker. It's definitely going to make it easier whether you choose MXNet or some other framework. Uh, that's definitely the, the right place to start. So we're going to be around here for a few more minutes. I think we can take a couple questions. And uh, I have a free, uh, a few, uh, gift cards that will get you a free Chick-fil-A sandwich or a breakfast. So if you come up and introduce yourselves afterwards, uh, I'm happy to share one of those. And if you give us a positive evaluation, I may even give you two. <laughs> so do you have any uh, questions? Uh, can you elaborate how you were able to use a video of that one picture to generate your 25,000 training data points. Sure, we used a phone just like the one that you have in your hand, and like, let's say this is the fries. So we took the video and, with the camera and merely went at different angles, because you want, you want pictures of fries from different angles. Okay. Um, 
all types of different angles. And then if you use OpenCV, you take the video into OpenCV, OpenCV will iterate over the video and will hand you back images, uh -huh. and then you can operate on each one of those images. Now, you, you need a good random distribution of fries, so you've got to do that over multiple packages of fries, which kind of goes back to the other story. We would walk down to Chick-fil-A, buy $50 worth of fries, and I had a lot of student labor, remember? <laughs> so I would just, I'd, I'd put fries in a package, I'd do a video, dump those out, put another one up, do a video. Um, that's exactly what we did. So Makes sense. In all in all, we had probably two or three hours worth of video, and then we would just cycle through it and it would do all the labeling and it would substitute the backgrounds. Thanks. The question was, did you, did you try the top motion to, uh, to, yeah, just to see, and the answer is no, we didn't. Uh, we, we knew that that would have a huge impact, but, but I didn't try that. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I work for Liberty Mutual, and so we're very interested in the, you know, watching the body joints and safety for workers' comp and other things like that. Um, but on the, on the camera, did you guys uh, consider maybe a, a mirror might give you an angle of uh, seeing the fries without placing the camera there? Um, and then a deeper follow-up would be, you know, you, you basically talked about this as a training use case, uh, not necessarily optimized to the business operation. That's right. Um, could you talk about how you're thinking about optimizing, you know, where you see direct applications, maybe like what you were talking about with the body joint tracking and so forth, but other things that you've thought about in the business where you see a more direct application and less just the learning cycle? Okay, well, your second question actually answered the first one in the sense that I'm more of a research and development organization, and again, I want to emphasize that I have sophomores and juniors programming this, so I, by no means is their code ready for production. Um, that said, they're, they're pretty good at, at developing conceptual ideas and prototypes, so I, my, my role or my innovation center will, will take a concept like this, develop a prototype, show it to the business, and then go to the business and say, hey, are you interested in pursuing this, and do you want to take it further? This, I believe, has been taken to a point that if the business wants to take it further, it probably won't involve me. We would probably go to an outside firm. We would probably go to, a, to an equipment manufacturer and say, hey, this is generally what we want you to do, and, and let them solve the camera issue. So that kind of goes back to your other question, too, about that really wasn't our goal, and, and I only take it so far. But we, clearly, we did prove that computer vision would be a good way of solving this problem. Um, then your other question about other areas that we're looking to apply that. Um, that I think I'm having a more difficult time answering that question um, other than to say that we, we at Chick-fil-A, it's a very well-run company. It's very well-aligned. And for example, we know that food safety is very important. And that's where we've, we've been able to see that, hey, being able to solve food safety or improve food safety has huge benefits. And what was interesting in the food safety um, project, if I can just digress for a second, was we, we actually had another project I'm not talking about, but it was to make a, a dancing cow, a Chick-fil-A cow that we wanted kids in a restaurant to be able to make a cow dance. But then we quickly realized that, hey, that same technology would be applicable to food safety. Um, so we kind of, then we kind of made a, a, a pivot from, a, say, a Microsoft Connect 
over to Intel RealSense and using more complex models to do that. So that's really where, we're, hey, we're just prototyping with and exploring multiple technologies, knowing what's important to the business. That's how we got to these other ideas. Oh, I'm sorry. You mentioned you had some problems with uh, OpenCV. If you were to do the product again, knowing all that you know now, would you still use OpenCV or is there another library that you'd recommend? That's a good question also. Um, Amazon provided me with a lot of really good support in this project and they did tell me that there were some other better um, trackers than using OpenCV. Um, but I got to the point where, hey, I just wanted to do a prototype. I know there's a better solution. Um, and right now, what, one of the projects we're working on is um, actually we're using a shell game idea to try and do some more sophisticated tracking. Um, and there we want to get away from OpenCV. So there are a couple of things you want to consider here. Mo, we have built um, Gluon CV on the top of OpenCV. Some of the data augmentation that features that you have in OpenCV do exist in uh, Gluon CV and they hopefully they would not have the same problems. So if you really want to do some sort of data augmentation and building a pipeline for data, uh, look at the Gluon CV's utils uh, library, the APIs that are in the utils. Great, thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Cyrus. I understand that uh, Chick-fil-A is, uh, is using edge hardware in the restaurants for IoT use cases within, uh, within the kitchen. Um, is there any uh, interest in leveraging that kind of hardware uh, for your imaging case? I'm sorry, for, for what was the last part of your question? You, leveraging it for what? For this use case of computer vision. Um, again, it kind of goes back to the earlier question. Um, you, you are correct that we are using, um, we, we do have a rather sophisticated uh, approach to IoT in the restaurant and involves Kubernetes um, and it's not really positioned well at the moment to have a device that has a GPU. So we can use Greengrass in the same restaurant. It could definitely work on the same network, but we haven't solved the issue of how do I get a GPU device? It's not, it's not part of the existing stack, but that would be a part of when we take this from a conceptual idea to an actual implementation. That would be one of the things we would have to solve. Thank you very much. This question will be pretty easy for you. Um, the co-location or the location near Georgia Tech University using students to develop this prototype, brilliant. Um, so two questions, how many students were involved in this initial you know, exploration and development of the prototype? And then what were their majors? Were they more computer science? Were they from the business school? Or, or was it just a big diverse group? Um, that, that's a good question also. Our innovation center has been operational for about a year and um, a lot has changed. So my answer isn't going to be, you can't infer too much from my answer. So the, the first part of your answer is we had three students and they spanned, um, I had two working on it in the spring and one in the summer um, and they were all computer science majors. Since that, I, since then, I have used students from other schools. So I've, I'm getting better results on innovation projects when I have a more diverse student body. So now I have five or six student or five or six schools making up the students in the innovation center. When I did this project, they were exclusively Georgia Tech. So that's the first point. Um, the second point um, 
it really kind of goes back to what Cyrus was saying, is that much of the work that we did here um, was difficult in the sense that MXNet and Gluon was progressing and improving rapidly. So I began this work last December, and MXNet was on version 1.1, then we got to Gluon, and I had it almost working with Gluon, and then Gluon CV came out, and then they went to 1.3. My point of that is that the software libraries were changing rapidly, and it was getting easier and easier. So what took me six months, had I had Gluon CV at the beginning, I probably could have done it in three months. Um, but earlier in the year when that was when Gluon CV hadn't been released, I, I was kind of struggling with a few things. Thank you. Any other questions? All right, well, again, thanks, and great, thanks for the great questions, too.